All right, we're going to get going now with all five of you. <laughs> Is this everybody? I don't think so. I think I saw a couple other people, but I'll, uh, I'll pray, and they'll hear me going, and they'll come. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for how much grace it took to wake us up, and we never really realized that. Thanks that we can gather with your people this morning. Thanks that we can study your word together. And thanks for giving us such a unified message in your word. And I pray we see that this morning, Father. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. There we go. Oh, I think I reset on there. Yeah, I did. Just give me a second. I got to get back to where I was. This is all the stuff we've covered. Okay. So the first class, we looked at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then the second class, we looked at the former prophets, which was uh, Israel's conquest of the land and the establishment of a king in the land, and then right up until exile. And today we're looking at latter prophets. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And the Twelve are a unit of twelve minor prophets. So to recap from last time, God establishes his people in the land. Israel will not keep their covenant with God. uh, And they spiral out of control. And this begs for a king. Uh, So God establishes temporary kings over Israel. And he promises that one will reign forever through David's line. That's the Davidic covenant. And through all this time, Israel's still under the major bracket of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, And under the leadership of these kings, Israel ends up being hardened towards God still. And Assyria and Babylon take the northern and southern kingdom into exile. So the latter prophets are, the major themes of them that happen over and over and over are warning accusations of the covenant breaking. So again, that's more what prophecy was uh, to the people of Israel. It's, it's the prophets of God kind of acting as a lawyer, going, here were the terms and conditions, here was your covenant. God is speaking through us, accusing you of breaking your end of the covenant. But that's always mixed in through promises of hope, so much hope in, uh, in the latter prophets. Uh, grace is for the sake of God's glory. That's a major theme in the latter prophets. And a better city and a better king. I could not find a chart that was either not way too simple or not way more than we needed, so I had to make my own chart. But anyway, so you'll kind of see here for latter prophets, the chart goes from 1 Samuel uh, all the way to the return to the land after the exile. We ended off last time at right as the exile started. But there's in the center there a chart of the main history And then you'll see on top there where the three major prophets we're going to look at today take place. Isaiah happens in 2 Kings, like in tandem with some stories there. And Isaiah ends about 100 years before they go into exile. He's warning the people, you know, repent, turn back to God, but it's, it's a final thing. Jeremiah takes us right up until exile. And then Ezekiel is known as... Uh, an exilic prophet, which means he's a prophet living in the exile. And then the reason that Isaiah's there again in brackets after return to the land is because Isaiah, we'll get there, but this second, you know, the last third of Isaiah 
is prophetically speaking to that time. It's, some people actually think somebody else wrote that portion. I think Isaiah wrote it. It doesn't really matter. It's just speaking to that time, the return from the exile. Uh, and then under there, you see minor prophets. That just goes throughout the whole storyline. The, ma- the minor prophets are scattered all the way throughout there. Uh, we'll get there. And then the very bottom, this is all under the Mosaic Covenant. And then starting in Second Samuel, everything from there on is under the Davidic Covenant with the expectation that a king's coming. And we really see that theme in the major prophets. So the prophet Isaiah first. So who? The prophet Isaiah, the kings of Judah and the surrounding nations. What? Isaiah uh, warning the kings of Judah to repent and turn before the exile comes, but also prophetic encouragement, where Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom Judah. The three major prophets we're looking at today, they were all prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah. The minor prophets, uh, there's some to the northern kingdom, Israel, and some most to the southern kingdom. Uh, When, this is about, like I said, 100 years before the exile finally happens, well, that's when Isaiah, his ministry ends, right? His final warnings kind of thing. And why? To show God's holiness and justice, but also his grace and his plan for a future for Israel and his people. And Isaiah, really the latter prophets especially, you can find traces of it everywhere, but the latter prophets make it especially clear that this is meant to go to all nations. So the main structure of Isaiah is threefold, the way I've divvied it up. So 1 to 39 is Isaiah's commission, and it's just a lot of oracles, which are just kind of warning poems uh, against Judah, but they're mixed with grace. So it's always, you broke the covenant, here's how, and here's what you're going to get for it if you don't repent, and prophetically you won't repent. But it's always mixed in with grace, and there's also oracles against the nations in this section. Uh, 40 to 55, this is just lots and lots of hope spoken to the people in exile to come out of exile. So this is supposed to speak to the people right at the end of the exile and into coming back into the land, like I, like I said when I had on that chart. Uh, and Isaiah 56 to 66 is just a lot of encouragement to hold fast to the covenant, prepare yourself now to establish yourself back in the land once you come out of the exile. So we're going to focus in just on one spot, really, in Isaiah, and then we'll go through some more after. But everybody turn to Isaiah 6. It's different with, like, very few people when you don't hear a lot of Bible pages turning. (laughs) So I think Isaiah 6 is a really good catapult into the rest of Isaiah. So... Isaiah sees God in this temple vision. He's high and lifted up. Uh, and the, the seraphim flying around the Lord in this vision cry out, holy, holy, holy. The reason they say that three times is because in Hebrew, they didn't, if they wanted to emphasize something, they didn't do like exclamation marks in their literature. They'd just repeat something twice. And I think this is the only thing in the scriptures ever repeated three times. So Isaiah is emphasizing God's really, really, really holy. And the idea there is other than us, separate than us, you know, different category. And so woe is Isaiah. That's interesting because if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, like I was saying, there's just a lot of oracles and, you know, poems against the surrounding nations. So Isaiah will be, woe is this nation? Woe is that nation? But when Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, you know, woe is me, right? He realizes how sinful he is. And he says, who will go for me, right? And Isaiah says, send me. So this is his commission. 
And God says to Isaiah, okay, go speak to these people. And he basically says to Isaiah, keep, keep prophesying to them. And in doing that, you're going to blind them unless they see and understand and return and be healed. So your ministry is to blind the people so that they don't return and be healed. So a question that we might have from that is, would or can God really do this? Is that in his character? Does he have the rights to do that, to deliberately harden a people and have a purpose so that you will not repent? That seems counterintuitive, right? What do you guys think about that? Is that within God's prerogative? I mean, obviously, because it's in the Bible, but what are thoughts on that? How is it? How is that fitting with God's character? agree with that exactly and I think that fits in well to the next part of Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says you know like he's probably thinking that seems kind of pointless so Isaiah asks God how long am I going to do that Lord just prophesy to a blind people and the Lord says basically long story short the Lord says until they go into exile until their houses are desolate and their land laid waste but God's going to reserve for himself a stump a tenth and so I think that fits in exactly with what Chris was saying because It's not like Isaiah's preaching is effectually hardening a not yet hard heart, right? Uh, It might be hardening more a heart that's already prone to be hardened towards godly preaching, right? But I think the fact that God says, preach this until the people are judged kind of gives us a clue that, like I said, it's not effectually hardening them, but the purpose of Isaiah's ministry is to vindicate God and his judgment when Israel does go into exile. So they can't say you left us without a prophet, right? It just makes God an even better and even more righteous judge because when they do go into judgment, they'll have no case. Like they won't even have a case that they had no mercy. They had so many warnings. And so basically the Lord is saying, preach this until I'm vindicated in my judgment and I'll get glory from that. And then at the end of Isaiah 6, you know, he says, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So the imagery there is Israel's being cut down, and then there's a stump left, and even that stump is going to be burned. But the remains from that, there's enough there, a tenth of God's people to shoot up and grow into a new tree, right? So God's going to preserve for himself a people. But yeah, I agree with that exactly, Chris. Alrighty. Then some key verses I picked out from Isaiah that I think we should read that 
are just wonderful. Go to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. And Tim, do you want to read Isaiah 43, 18 to 22? Thank you. So, even in the midst of all of this sin and all of this rejection of God and all of this idolatry, the Lord's saying, don't even remember that. My grace forgets your sin. Forget it. I'm doing a new thing. You know, do you perceive it? And he's going to make water where there is no water. He's going he's to send a valley of life in a valley of, of desert, right? Uh, but then it says, like Tim read in 22, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob. So there's just like so much hope, 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 hope. But Jacob, you have not called upon me. So it almost seems like the Lord has this great plan that he is going to establish to stay true to his covenant with Abraham and do something great for the nations through this people. But it can't be through Israel as a people as they are now anyway, right? Because then it goes into a indicament against them for not calling upon the Lord, for not acting justly, right? And then so... The latter end of Isaiah is what a lot of people call the servant songs. So back then, Israel would have thought of this as Israel as a nation. We understand now in the New Testament that the servant is actually Jesus Christ. And the reason that Israel thought this was either very many figures or the whole nation corporately sometimes, even though that's a little more rare, is because there's so many things this servant does in the next few chapters of Isaiah that Isaiah is prophesying that the Israelites just decided one man can't do all these things because, you know, the servant is seen dying, but then after that, the servant is seen uh, having prosperity. The servant's seen doing so many things, so that's why they've always thought it was a bunch of different people. Uh, Go to Isaiah 49. And do you want to read verse 6, Jen? Isaiah 49, 6. He says, It is too light of things that he would be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back, preserve Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may be given. Right, so that's a really good verse for this is so obviously meant to go to all of the nations. God has this plan to bring living waters in a dry valley, but it seems like it can't be through Israel as they are, so it's going to be through this servant we're about to read about. And actually, as a side note, I remember this. Josh isn't here, but Emily will remember this too. There was a time at Bible college where, long story short, we were like kind of just being confronted with a doctrine that taught Israel was God's plan A, B, and C. Like, that was, that was it. It was always meant for Israel. And right now, in the church, we're like a parenthetical thing. We're like God's side people, his plan B, while he deals with Israel in judgment in the meantime until he can reestablish his main people. 
And that was really troubling me because this system was really internally consistent. Like it made a lot of sense on his own, but I also had this tension because I knew scripture taught that this was always meant to go to all nations. It was always for all peoples, but I just had that as a flavor in scripture. I understood it like that, but I didn't have like a text and it's always nice to have a text. So I think Emily will remember. I know Josh will probably remember. We were in my living room talking about this and Josh showed me this verse and I was so excited. I was sitting on my spinny chair backwards holding the back rest of my spinny chair and when Josh read this verse I got so excited I broke <laughs> the back end of my spinny chair and to this day it's still really uncomfortable but but I really love this verse it was always meant to go to all people and then go to Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53 and I'll read verses I'll read verse 10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So we have this servant who's going to suffer for the sins of Israel. If you read this whole chapter, and I would encourage you to when you get home, it's atonement for the sin of Israel. This servant is represented as the better sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And then after he dies, though, it says he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied in verse 11, right? And even at the end of verse 10, he shall see his seed. You'll prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So that's why Israel kind of thought this was not just one character. It seemed impossible, right? Because they had no concept until Jesus came of a dying and resurrecting Messiah. So, yeah, Isaiah, long story short, the Lord commissions Isaiah He prophesies to the people. Uh, God ends up being vindicated in his judgment because a hundred years after Isaiah, the people do go into exile finally. Uh, The southern kingdom of Judah goes into Babylonian exile. But all of these prophecies that are supposed to speak to the people after the exile have so much hope in them that there is going to be this servant to come who represents all of Israel, who's a better and true Israel, who suffers for the sins of the people. Um... And just does so many amazing things. So that's the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah. Who? The prophet Jeremiah and the kings of Judah and Babylon. What? So Jeremiah's a collection of collections. One of Jeremiah's servants actually collected all of his uh, writings for him because God commanded Jeremiah to have that happen. And Jeremiah was a priest in the land of Israel in the last few decades in the southern tribe of Judah, right up until the exile, right up until God put them out of the land. So after Isaiah, but right before the exile. Uh, Yeah, so a collection of writings aligned to accuse God's people of covenant breaking. Again, that's the main idea of prophecy, especially in the latter prophets, accusation for not keeping your end of the covenant with God and to warn them of Babylonian captivity. Uh, takes place in the southern kingdom Judah and the very end a bit takes place in Babylon uh, when like I said the last few decades leading up to exile and why to vindicate God in his judgment of his people and the surrounding nations but Jeremiah also gives lots of hope for a new covenant and we're going to talk about that so here's this chart again Isaiah Isaiah's done but the latter end of Isaiah that we looked at that has those servant songs Isaiah 53 uh, all of the hope in Isaiah like 43 that we were reading, 49, I'll send you as a light to all nations. That's hope for the return to the land. But now we're in Jeremiah, after Isaiah, right before the exile. I know charts really help me. So Jeremiah is 
kind of structured like this. 1 to 24 is accusations against Israel and against the surrounding nations, uh, warnings of coming judgments. Isaiah 25 to 45 is judgment mixed with hope for Israel. And then within that, and we're going to really focus on this uh, this morning, is Isaiah 30 to 33, which outlines a new covenant God's going to make with Israel. Because the point is, this one is not working. Like, your flesh has no power to fulfill this covenant. Don't worry, I'll make a new covenant then. Uh, Jeremiah 46 to 51 is, again, judgment mixed in with hope, but this time for the nations. And then uh, Jeremiah 52 is judgment fulfilled, uh, destruction of Jerusalem, exile, and hope. And actually, Jeremiah ends the same way as Second Kings ended last time. If you were here and you remember that short story about the king being let out of prison under captivity and treated really well, to just give a glimmer of hope. So just to kind of put it in your mind's time frame where Jeremiah happens, that's a helpful aligner for me. So go to Jeremiah 7. So basically the context of this is, again, Jeremiah is accusing the people of covenant breaking, accusing them of being unfaithful. And Jeremiah 7 is called his temple sermon. He's just telling the people how it is. It's a kind of choose this day, death or life before you sort of thing. Um, Does somebody want to read? Emily, can you read Jeremiah 7? 21 to 23. Right, so Isaiah is saying to the people, the Lord didn't require anything of you but to obey my voice, be my people, walk in my ways. And he says in 22, for I did not speak to your fathers or did I command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But if you were here for the class in Leviticus, like the class in the Pentateuch, you just see the law of God played out and then Leviticus God certainly instructed them in burnt offerings. So what's going on here? Like, is this a contradiction? Didn't God command them to do burnt offerings? Uh, what is this telling us about Israel and their hypocrisy? What's Jeremiah trying to say here? What's he trying to emphasize? Right, right. Exactly. And so what does that have? What is, if you read this passage, what would you say, obeying the Lord and walking in his ways, what does that have preeminence over? What's the point of uh, importance here when the Lord says through Jeremiah, I have not commanded you in burnt offerings and sacrifices, even though he has? Right. First they have to love the Lord. So it's kind of just a prophetic way to say, It's not a contradiction. If you read the whole book of Jeremiah, it's actually obvious that Jeremiah does know that God commanded them in these sacrifices. The point here is, without a right heart and without walking genuinely from within in the Lord's statutes and in his ways, 
your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, they're nothing to me. So a better way to think of it is, I didn't command you in burnt sacrifices like you're doing them, right? It's just a bunch of hypocrisy. The people in Jeremiah's time are putting on a religious show, uh, but really they're idolatrous, very, very sinful. So yeah, Joan was exactly right. Uh, It's just that the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord and genuine submission to the Lord has preeminence over the burnt offerings. God's not writing them off or disqualifying them. They, this passage is saying they mean nothing without genuine from the heartness. It can't be religious hypocrisy. So that kind of is a good summary of the first big portion of Isaiah. Uh, or, sorry, Jeremiah. He's just accusing them and saying, your religious hypocrisy is going to get you nowhere. This means nothing to the Lord without a good heart. Uh, go to Isaiah, or Jeremiah sorry, 31. Jeremiah 31. So I'm going to break you guys into groups. I'm looking, and I do have time for that. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do just two larger groups, I think, today, actually. So if you guys want to partner with you guys, and then if you guys all want to partner together, uh, go to Jeremiah 31, 34, and try and come up with answers for the following. I'll try and give you a fair amount of time here. Even if just one, try and do all three, but even if just one, that's okay. Uh, How is this covenant that's described in these verses better than the Mosaic covenant that Israel's under right now? Uh, What does it mean that nobody will have to be taught to know the Lord? And what is the main point that this passage is telling us about the new covenant? So I'll shut my head thing off and I'll come join a group. My group can go first. Do any of you want to be the spokesperson or? Tim. Pardon? Okay, thanks. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. Would you guys agree with that summation of what Tim says? That's kind of what you guys were thinking? I knew it's what you guys were thinking. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Moving on. Yeah, so I, uh, Jeremiah, I keep doing that. Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah 50 to 51, that's the prophecy of destruction of Babylon. A question I had here that we won't go into too much today because of time is, why would God punish Babylon? Like, he's the one who chose them and let them punish Israel. So why is he punishing them for punishing Israel? after they go into exile. And the answer there is similar to Isaiah 6. God's not making Babylon do anything they wouldn't have done. He's just giving them opportunity that works in accordance with his, his plan um, for them to seize their opportunity because they just want, they want to be oppressors of Israel. Hey, could I, I was wondering if you're going to go through each question. Could I answer one of the questions from the previous page? Yeah. 
Yep. That, that question, that second question there, what does it mean that nobody will have to be taught to know the Lord? I just think in the passage, so I may have been overhearing one of the groups talking and just want to add this. Um, in, the, in the passage here, where it says no one will have to uh, say to his brother, know the Lord, it's connected to this next year, before they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And I just think that's worth drawing attention to as the big difference from the covenant that they were in under Moses right. today. Is the one they were in under Moses, was before they ate Abraham, everybody got circumcised, everybody's in the covenant. Right. And yet some people who knew God and some people who didn't. Right. And whereas the big difference here in the new covenant is that we enter the covenant by being born again. Right. And so everybody who's a part of the new covenant knows the Lord, at least should. Right. Why we as a Baptist church organize ourselves the way we do. Right. We don't believe in this idea that that works. Uh, just like Israel was, where we've got people who know God, people who don't know God, and we're all just mixed together. Right. Rather, being in this new covenant with Jesus means that you personally know Jesus. You, you know the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, Chris is exactly right. I should have brought that up. So the old covenant was very corporate. Like, it's like this big race to the finish line. And at any moment, anyone can drop out. It's a bunch of, it's a mixture of, of people who don't really know the Lord and who do, right? Like you said, in the old covenant, to just enter the covenant, all you have to do is be born a Jew. But in the new covenant, you have to be born again. So, yes, everybody in the new covenant has a personal relationship with God and is ultimately saved. Good point, Chris. Thanks. Okay, so now we're going to go really quickly through Ezekiel. And then the 12 I had as a summation anyway, so that's okay. But Ezekiel, yeah, it kind of takes place right before the exile starts. And he's an exilic prophet, so it just goes over the exile too. Uh, So really quickly, Ezekiel. Who, the prophet Ezekiel, the Babylonian captors and the people of Israel. What? Ezekiel's in exile. Uh, in Babylon, and God calls him to begin prophesying against Israel and the surrounding nations, but again, leaves messages hope. Where? Mostly Babylon, and when? Very shortly before total exile. Uh, and why? To show God's judgment on wickedness, but give hope for a future where the Spirit of God is poured out and His presence fills the earth. So, Ezekiel 1 to 11 is God commissioning uh, Ezekiel, and again in the theme with prophets, accusing Israel. Uh, of breaking their covenant standards. Uh, 12 to 32 is just a bunch of prophecies and judgments on Israel and surrounding nations. 33, uh, Ezekiel receives word that the total destruction and siege of Israel, or of Jerusalem, sorry, has happened. So up until then, it's kind of just like short shot invasions that have happened, but then that's the marker, total exile has begun. Uh, And Ezekiel 34 to 37 Hope for Israel, the vision of the valley of dry bones. You know, son of man, can these dry bones live? That represents dead, dry, desolate Israel. But, you know, God through Ezekiel prophesies over them and he has a vision of them living. And Ezekiel 38 to 48 is hope for all the nations and all creations. There's this, in all creation, there's this amazing temple vision. And I'm going to read Ezekiel uh, 36, 25 to 27, quick. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. So this is Ezekiel prophesying about the future. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit. And I will take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Then you will keep my judgments and do them. Does that remind us of anything (laughs) that we just went over, right? Yeah. Pretty, pretty obviously very similar themes to Jeremiah going on here. Um, Ezekiel 37 describes one kingdom reunited under one king. So again, there's still themes picking up on the Davidic covenant here. There's going to be a better king and a forever kingdom united one people under God. And then 40 to 48 is this new temple and new city. And it's just a really long description with a whole bunch of like really tight um, measurements of this new temple. And it hasn't been built yet. You'd think it would because... I mean, the Jews at the time certainly thought this was going to be a real physical, literal temple. And it makes us wonder from a New Testament perspective, is this temple the people of God, right? Because there is this, there's this part in the vision where Ezekiel sees water coming from it, flowing, flowing, flowing into a river, and then the water ends up going into desolate, dry lands and causing all sorts of vegetation to spring up. And it just represents this temple where the, Holy, where the Spirit lives, where the Spirit of God is poured out, where His presence is, giving life to all the world, all the nations, right? And we understand that now as the church. The Spirit of God lives in us. He causes us to love His law. And we go into all the worlds and preach the gospel. Now, some few people in Christianity do think this is going to be a real physical, literal temple later. I don't hold that view uh, for a few reasons that I won't go into. But the main point here is God does have a plan to bring through his presence returned to his people, um, restoration of unity with his people. And then there's the 12. So who, the 12 minor prophets who God spoke through, what? Uh, He's speaking through these prophets, both northern and southern kingdoms, uh, giving them hope and warning. This is uh, in Israel, the whole land of Israel, uh, over a large period of Israel's history. So again, I think the next slide is this. Chart. So see, that's Israel's history at the top. And then I found this chart. It's not perfect, but I thought it was good enough. All scattered throughout there are the minor prophets. So you can see they take place in a bunch of different places. And why? These prophets uh, function as a unit. The the ancient Jews considered them one unit uh, prophesying against Israel. So if you read through them, there's some very common themes of judgment, but hope, and this very common reoccurring theme of the day of the Lord. And if we had time to go through them, I left these here as optional things to kind of give a synopsis of each one. But the most important thing is that, uh, oh, is that off for good now, Chris? Okay. Okay, perfect. The most important thing is that these are viewed as one unit. It just happens over the span of Israel's history from the establishment of the kingdom right up until they come back from exile and are still disobeying God. And it's just prophecy about the day of the Lord is a huge theme, which is a day that is at the same time judgment and salvation and restoration. And then this last one is Malachi. It's post-exile. After they come back from the exile, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Israel's heart still isn't changed, but God still loves his people. And then at the end of Malachi, it describes this great day of the Lord. And uh, actually, Luke picks up on this in a way that you wouldn't like expect him to pick up on this minor prophet. You kind of read over them or skip them, but the New Testament uses them in like really amazing ways. And you'll have to come to the class two weeks from now to figure that out. Next week, we're going to be looking at the writings. So those are the poetries and 
Uh, all of the writings or recaps of history that happen over Israel's history we'll be looking at next time. And then the week after, we'll start to see how the New Testament employs all of this stuff we have been learning. So uh, thanks very much for your time. That's all I have today.